Hey, this Sunday, I've got the fun um, topic of spiritual warfare uh, to speak on, which is so up my alley. There's something hardwired in me that I just really enjoy spiritual confrontation. I really love it when I'm praying for somebody. And God's just showing you know, that there's something locking that person down that's robbing them of the fullness that he has and, and just seeing God come in and with like a flick of his finger, just shifting something that's oppressing their life and seeing freedom flood around somebody and seeing that was taken away, instantly restored or taking them on a process of restoration and starting to see their life change. I love the spiritual confrontation um, that happens in spiritual warfare. All right, so this morning, I just want to um, pretty much, I'm just going to crack the lid open on this topic. Over the next few weeks, Glenn and Deb are going to take this a lot further and a lot deeper. So my goal this morning is to get these two thoughts across. Spiritual warfare, the whole supernatural realm of the angelic and the demonic, that whole avenue, that whole sphere. My goal for you this morning is to come away from this message understanding that it's real, And that Jesus is always bigger. That the whole demonic world, the plans of the devil, that he goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But Jesus goes around like the lion of Judah with guns all over and it's just target practice for him. Jesus is always bigger. So we're going to go into one of my favorite stories this morning. It's found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 20. And this is one of the ultimate stories in the Bible. This is an amazing story. This takes place a few generations after King David and a whole lot of generations before the time of Jesus. And Ahab is king of Israel. He's ruling over 10 tribes. Samaria is his capital city. And Ahab is a wishy-washy, gutless king. He's pretty much a wannabe, he's a poser, and he lived in the time of Elijah, and that was a bad time to be a gutless king in the time of Elijah, because Elijah was full of fire. He had so much fire, he would just call it down on heaven, from heaven and just like burn up armies at will. He was terrifying, okay? So Ahab is this gutless king, and he's ruling the throne, and he comes into a time of life where he can choose to remain a little bit gutless, but he gets backed into a corner where he's got no other option other other than to die or to rely on God to come through for him. So this is where we start our story today. 1 Kings chapter 20. I'm just going to pull out a few verses for the sake of time. We're just going to power through this story and then we're going to unpack a few things. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army, accompanied by 32 other kings with their horses and their chariots. He went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. So Ben-Hadad is this enemy king. He has got 32 other kingdoms decide to combine together. 33 kings and kingdoms go to fight one nation. It's a little bit of an overkill. They're just on a war path. They're going to come through. They're going to blow it apart. And Ahab kind of gets up one morning and there's 33 kingdoms surrounding him. And he has this overwhelming thought of, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And the enemy king sends a message to King Ahab saying, this is the deal I will make with you. Your silver, your gold are mine, and so are the best of your wives and your children. They now belong to me. 
And so Ahab has this moment where he sees himself completely surrounded against unbeatable odds. He's on the back foot in a bit of a victim mindset. And this, this enemy king makes a demand of him, give me your gold, your silver, and your wives and your kids, and I'll let you live. And he thinks to himself, this is amazing, I'm going to live. I'm going to give away my legacy, but I'm going to live. I'm going to give away the future of my nation, but I'm going to survive. See, Ahab didn't have a built-to-last mindset. He had a built-to-survive mentality. And I love the, love the season we're in at Thrive at the moment of going, what does it mean to be built to last? What does it mean to have a marriage that's built to last? What does it mean to raise your kids who are going to have lives that are built to last? What does it mean to have, to have a relationship with Jesus that is built to last? See, Ahab didn't have a built to last mentality. He had a I'm built to survive mentality. And so he writes to the king back, sweet ass man. You can come. You can take my wives. I don't love them that much anyway. You can take my kids. I don't really need them. As long as I can survive, then I'm okay with this. And so the enemy king gets the report, and this is what he hears. I'm a pushover. I'll do whatever you want. And, and, and the devil goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and he will if you let him. But if you stand up for yourself, the Bible says if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The word resist doesn't mean just to like weather the storm. The resisting actually means to, to forcibly push against, to go forward. Just imagine like an all-black player fending a Frenchman in the face and running over and over and over to a try line. That's what resisting looks like to the devil. It's severe. Oh, I see what I did there. I stole that from Facebooks, my friends. So the king, the enemy king, gets this impression, oh, this king of Israel, he's a bit of a pushover. He's, I mean, he is nothing like the kings of old. So he sends him another message. This time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials, and we'll come take your silver, your gold, we'll take your wives and your kids, but we're also going to go into the homes of every one of your officials. And we're also going to take from them whatever it is that we want. So he was the head of his home. And because he was a pushover so quickly when it came to a confrontation, because he yielded so quickly, it began to give permission to the enemy to go throughout the whole rest of the home and to do to everybody else that was under him what they were doing to him. And this is kind of, this pushes him against a corner where he's like, man, this is just too much. So he calls together his wise men, all the leaders of the nation, and they say, hey, don't give him an inch. So he writes back to him. They didn't have emails, so these little messages are running back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> runs, to the, runs to the enemy king. Hey, my king says, no deal. First deal still stands. You can rob from me, but you can't rob from my people. A little bit of a backbone started to grow in it. And so the enemy king is in his tent getting drunk with all the other kings, and he's outraged. And so he sends back another message saying, May all the gods punish me so severely if there's enough dust in your nation left that each of my men could carry a handful home. And he sends a message out to his soldiers, to all the 33 kingdoms that are combined together, say, prepare for war, we're going to attack the city. And so now Ahab, who's fully backed into a corner, is kind of like in for a penny, in for a pound. It's like, he's got nothing else to go for now. And he's like, I'm just going to die anyway. Let's make this glorious. And so he sends back another letter. And this is by far 
one of the greatest quotes in my mind in the Bible. The king of Israel answered him, tell him, one who puts on his armor shall not boast like one who takes it off. Tell, tell your king and his 32 allies that they might be suiting up for war, but we'll see who lives at the end of the day to take off their armor. Let's do this. And so this king is so outraged that they begin to get ready to attack the city. But meanwhile, a prophet comes to the king of Israel and says to him, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give them into your hand today and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this, asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. See, what I think is interesting, it wasn't until Ahab decided that I'm going to stand up, I'm going to fight, that a word of God came to him saying, I'm going to bring you breakthrough. It wasn't until he decided, you know what, I'm not going to put up with this any longer, that then the prophet came to say, you know what, God's going to deliver all of these nations into your hands and you will know that I am God. And so the king says, who, who will do this? And he says, the junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And so then the king says, who will start the battle? And the man of God answers, you will. See, God's into saving nations and he's into transforming people in the process. And when you go through a spiritual battle, a spiritual conflict, God's not just interested in the outcome of you getting the breakthrough. He's interested in you growing in the process. See, God will take every opportunity that the devil throws against you to go, man, you know what? The devil might throw that into you, but I'm, I'm going to turn that into gold in the process. The devil might have plans for you, but man, my plans are so clever. I'm going to turn you into a machine. This is going to be amazing. So the king gathers these young, these young men, 232 soldiers, and then he gathers the rest of his entire army, which is an insignificant 7,000 men. And so there's 232 men go out in the front line with the king with them, and the Bible says that each one of them strikes down their first opponent. And then fear fills the 33 nations because they see the very first step these people make and they're victorious with their first step. I mean, often I find that when, things are, when you're stepping into a God step and, and there's opposition and stuff like that, that first step is the scariest step. That first step when you're stepping out of the boat is the scariest step. But it sends a signal to everything else around you that, hey, God is moving and their response is, hey, this Christian just resisted me. I've got to get out of the way. And so 33 nations turn and run away from just over 7,000 men. Afterwards, the prophet comes back to the king of Israel and says, strengthen your position. Look around, see what must be done, because next spring, the enemy will be back to attack you again. And the story goes on and they come back and they get their butts whooped again and it's just like the cycle of God delivering people that will stand on His promises. See, this, this whole story is, is just so awesome because, I mean, it's, it's a physical battle that's got supernatural authorities going on behind it. You know, people just don't get up one day and decide to go to war because they feel like it. 
You know, everything that we have going on in our world has got, has got supernatural influences and ebbs and flows. The Bible says that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, the principalities, the darkness of the unseen world. What I love about living life after the death of Christ is that the battle's already won. Sorry, rather, the war. The war is already won. So you imagine... You imagine two armies that go against each other. We've got the bad army and the good army. The good army wins, and then their job isn't just to go home. Their job is actually to go and collect up the gold and the spoils and the trophies of the war that they've just won. And as they're going, and sometimes this would take days for them to collect the loot, to collect the inheritance of the battle that they won. And as they're going about doing it, you can imagine there could be pockets of resistance around the place, remnants of that battle of that war who want to have wee battles over those treasures. See, Jesus won the war when he died on the cross, and now we're commissioned as his kids to go out and to bring in the fullness of his reward, to bring people into freedom, to bring marriages into wholeness, to bring people into salvation, to see sickness made well, all of that stuff. And as we go about doing that, we meet pockets of resistance the war is already won, but we get to battle with Jesus for Jesus. The first point that I want to make this morning in our spiritual warfare, the first point is Jesus won the war, and with him we get to win the battles. See, in spiritual warfare, there's this, sometimes there's this misconception. You go, oh, man, you hear people talk about, oh, man, I'm, just, I'm under an attack at the moment. And I know those things happen. I, I experience those things. And, and they're never what I describe as fun times. But that's not where we camp. See, Jesus came to earth not to withstand the devil, not just simply to remain standing. He came to destroy the works of the devil. See, spiritual warfare, it's not like this, this passive, we just sit back and every now and then the devil tries to attack us and so then we get on our knees and start praying. No, it's a, I, I'm moving forward and I'm advancing so that Jesus' reward will come. That doesn't mean you're going around the streets trying to find demons so that you can hit them in the face. It means you're going about your life passionately hungry by what Jesus is hungry for passionately hungry about his kingdom moving in your workplace, hungry about seeing his peace flowing over different people, hungry about seeing sick people getting healed. You are deliberately active in seeing that Jesus gets the reward of the war. See, the, the king, he, he was so happy to have a survivor mentality that he was willing to sacrifice his legacy. I mean, if, if they took the best of his sons, who would rule the nation after him? He was happy to mortgage the future of generations rather than stand up in the authority that he had as a king and to trust that God was going to do something. See, I know for my own self that sometimes it's not until I get so dissatisfied, dissatisfied, oh, dissatisfied, I'm so dissatisfied after McDonald's. Time for a water break. <laughs> it's not until 
times I get so dissatisfied about something, so irritated about an area of my life that I'm being robbed in. It's like I was okay walking with a bit of a limp, but it gets to a point where you just get fed up and enough is enough. You go, man, I'm going to do something about this. And you start pushing for a breakthrough and then you get it and you feel that area of your life change, whether it's a physical circumstances, where it's something in your inner emotional world. And you think to yourself, man, why didn't I do this two years ago? Why, why was I so okay to settle with dysfunction? Second point I want to make this morning is don't settle with dysfunction when Jesus has more. This king was so okay to settle with dysfunction and to mortgage his legacy. But Jesus had so much more for him. He had to get pushed into a corner before he would take it, but he could have taken it right from the start. See, when it comes to the demonic world and all of that stuff, Satan doesn't fight fear. He's not a, he's not, he's not a gentleman in battle. And I, from my own experience and what I've seen, he waits for you to be tired, emotional or vulnerable. He's a father of lies who goes after your relationships and your dreams. He attacks from behind, from the side. Very rarely does he ever come head on. His tactics are fear, shame, and lies. He deceives people into becoming isolated, thinking they won't be accepted if people see their struggles or their sin. He tells people that they're the only ones going through what they're struggling with and that no one would really understand. He's the accuser. He tells people that we're worthless, that we're broken, that we're dirty, that we're impure, or that we're judged. He tries to fill people with shame and doubt about who they are. He attacks our identity as a prince or a princess of heaven, he wants us to doubt the goodness of God and to question the extent of his patience, his love, and his endless forgiveness. Satan doesn't fight fear, but I just want to share this morning, that's fine. I don't care if Satan doesn't fight fear because it was never a fear fight. As soon as Jesus enters the equation, it's never a fear fight. It's, it's like a tank going up against a chipmunk. It's never going to be a fear fight. I mean, he can have all the dirty tactics, but I've got Jesus. And when you've got Jesus, you've got the winning equation because the war is already won. When Jesus is in the equation, there's only ever one result. Jesus is always bigger. And Jesus will have his full reward. I just want to touch this morning on, on just a few different keys just to leave you with a couple tools. And, and like I see Glenn and Deb are going to break these open over the next few weeks. But just so that if you've got things going on in your, in your world at the moment, you go, man, I've got attention. And whether, you go, whether you're not sure whether it's like a demonic you know, attack on your life or it's just some brokenness uh, that God's wanting to heal, these, these tools are pretty universal. You know, whether you're struggling with this category or this category, putting Jesus into it brings out the same results. In spiritual warfare, the biggest weapon that you can have in your defense category to, to defend yourself against the plans of the enemy is vulnerability. Leading a lifestyle where you can be vulnerable to someone that you trust is, is the biggest key in your defense category. 
you know, I don't know how many times I would have gone to someone where I've, where I've stuffed up and, and this is weighing me down and it's getting a foothold in my life and go, man, I've stuffed up and, and I need to bring this out into the light and I need to share this. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another, to one another that you'd get healed. Not that you'd be forgiven, but that you would get healed. Because when, when, when the devil or when sin or when failure gets a foothold in yourself, a foothold is just an excuse for it to take another step and another step and to begin to create a lie that creates room for dysfunction to exist in your life. And when you bring that into the light and you tell somebody about it, you go, man, I've stuffed up. It's like nearly all of that stuff instantly loses its power. And you bring it to the surface and Jesus is standing there going, man, you, you were vulnerable and you've brought this to the surface. And now we as a family, we can do something about this and we can get that splinter out. Prayer, prayer and worship are massive. You know, even the basics of just praying in tongues. I mean, I know that sometimes when I'm doing an event or something like that, like Storm Camp was huge for me of stepping into something that felt so much bigger than myself and my dreams started going crazy and, and God was doing amazing stuff and there was demonic stuff happening and I'd have times where I felt like I was bulletproof and I felt times like I was just riddled with lead. You know, and I was like, my confidence would be massive and then my confidence would be tiny. And when I had tiny confidence, I didn't want to make decisions because I knew my decisions would be made out of a place of fear. And I had to shift that mindset. And so the way that I would shift it, I would just pray in tongues and I would walk around praying in tongues and, and just demanding that my confidence in God get restored. And I would feel that shift and then I would see the answer. I go, oh, this is where we're going. And the same thing happens in your business, in your marriage. When you're in that place of feeling like a victim, you're going to make a victim decision. But as you begin to worship, begin to pray in tongues, you begin to declare scripture, you begin to stand in the promises, your confidence takes a different perspective and you see a God solution. You go, that's the way we're going. I'm all in and I'm going for it. And that's when you get those moments like Ahab when a prophet turns up and says, God's going to bring you victory. Because you're standing on the victory of Jesus, going, Jesus is going to bring me victory. I'm all in. Worship, worship in itself just ushers the presence of God. I don't know anything else for me that is such a fallback option. If I don't know what to do, I just worship Jesus. If, if you don't know what to do, if you go, man, is this like a demonic attack or is this like my inner world or is this just my own stuff-ups? Is this, did I just make this through bad decisions? You know, it doesn't really matter. Just worship. Yeah. Just go, Jesus, you're bigger than this. Even when you can feel that, that brokenness or the pain on the inside, it's like, God, I can feel this and I'm going to worship you. Even though I'm experiencing this pain, I'm going to declare your promises and your love. I'm even just going to ignore all of that stuff. I'm just going to go, Jesus, you're amazing. I love you. You're my best friend. Jesus, you died for the sins of the world. You're incredible. And that worship ushers in his presence. And it's almost like you're giving permission for Jesus to do something that he's desperately already wanting to do. Often Jesus is just waiting for the invitation to be Jesus. I've got this saying, I've said, just let Jesus be Jesus. If there's a battle going on in, in, in your world, is Jesus being Jesus in that situation? Is Jesus, is his name the most powerful influence going on in the moment in that situation? 
If it's not, then just start worshiping Jesus in it. Start calling him in. Start putting and speaking the words that carry life and create into that situation. The last thing I just want to touch on really quickly, I just want to touch on deliverance. People hear the word deliverance and a lot of people get, oh, this is scary. Ooh, it's so not. It's so normal. You know, it's so normal. I remember at youth group one time, the band's going, there's this worship, and, and then some people start kind of like manifesting demons at the front. They're like, ah! and there's these visitors just over there. And these dudes are like, oh, and I go over to these guys because I don't want to scare them. I say, hey, all that's going on right now is that Jesus is bringing truth. And what you're seeing is the physical representation of lies breaking off people's lives. And, and there's a big misconception out there that if someone's got a, a demonic stuff attached to their life, that it's because they did a big sin stuff up and it created this gateway and this demon came in and now they're all like, ah, you know. And you know, don't go around like watching heaps of horror movies and looking at porn and all of that stuff because, you, you know, you probably get a little bit messed up along the way. But the majority of stuff that I've experienced and that I've been a part of and that I've seen with deliverance is not big uber sin related stuff. It's when people have just carried fear. Oh, that's my time. I didn't know that was on like that loud. It's when people have experienced fear, they've gone through trauma, they've, they've, they've made a wrong judgment about themselves or about the way that they see God and, and a lie has formed in their life that God's wanting to bring freedom to. When I was younger and I was in this church, I used to get this reoccurring thought over and over, you're not going to live past 43. Just this we thought, it was, just, it was like, it wasn't my thought, it was just left field, you're not going to live past 43. I remember going, that's a bit weird, and I shared it with Glenn and Chris, and I said, that's a lie. And they prayed, and they broke the lie off, and I remember going, ha, and coughing, as that lie just shifted off my life, and that fear went away. If you've got stuff and you're going, man, oh, this doesn't seem quite normal, this seems a little bit out there, then it could just simply be the devil's got some lies around you that are trying to bring you down. And it's so awesome to talk about that stuff. There's no shame in that. It's a normal part of moving forward in freedom. Jesus is so awesome. You know, as we worship Jesus and we pray to Jesus and we, and we do all of this stuff, we're just putting Jesus in his rightful place in our lives. Just in closing this morning, I just want to recap. Jesus won the war, and with him, we get to win the battle. Jesus won the war, and we get to win the battle. We're not called to settle with dysfunction, to mortgage our legacy. We're called to have a life that's built to last because Jesus has more for us. Spiritual warfare is not a passive thing. Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. Jesus was advancing, is advancing, and will always be advancing. You'll always be victorious. We can be so confident in who we are and who we are in him when we engage in spiritual warfare. Awesome. We just get the band up. That'd be awesome. Good word. Hey, guys, we're just going to just take a moment to just really just sit in the presence of God. We're just getting, ben, could you just do the, the, the third or the fourth song that you did? And 
What I just want us to do this morning is just wherever you're at in your life, you can stand, you can sing, or you can just sit and meditate and just let this flow over you. But I just want you just for the next minute, and then Glenn's going to wrap up. Just go, Jesus, I thank you that you're the name above all names. Jesus, I thank you that you're so much bigger. I thank you that the devil is nothing compared to you. I thank God that you've got so much more for me. God, I'm waiting for your breakthrough.